Hello and welcome to the Mountain Gazette Library. I'm Sean Boozdar, and this week we proudly present the writings of Randy LaChapelle, bard, writer, and mystic. Enjoy. Enjoy the great American West. What's left of it? October on top of Half Dome. The whole Sierra was blanketed with a foot of snow. On. I had just entered a pleasantly empty subway car. And the next thing you know, you're in this calm, calm water. When you know who you are, when you get in touch with yourself, you don't have choices. So I think as a journalist right now, you have a lot of opportunity to really put across quality work that will stand out in a sea of a lot of garbage. If I've learned anything about life balance, it would be that the no balance balance is where it's at. (laughs) Episode 8, Growing Up High by Randy LaChapelle for Mountain Gazette 40. Mountain Gazette Library is proudly presented by Steo. Designed, developed, and tested at the base of the Tetons in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Steel was founded to inspire connection with the outdoors through premium technical apparel for the epic and everyday. Learn more at Steel.com. S-T-I-O.com. Steel. Let the outside in. This episode is also brought to you in association with Gordini. Gordini has been redefining the cold weather experience through outdoor gear and glove innovation for more than 66 years. Based in Vermont, family-run and independently owned, Gordini has focused on the same mission since its founding in 1956 to keep you outside longer. From introducing the first ever down and leather ski mitts to launching the industry's first dual-layer ski sock, Gordini believes that the future is in our hands and now our feet. Innovation is always done in the spirit of progress. See what drives our product and our passion at Gordini.com. G-O-R-D-I-N-I.com. During the International Geophysical Year, 1957 to 1958, my father initiated a research project on the Blue Glacier. The Blue Glacier lies on Mount Olympus, part of Olympic National Park in Washington State. A 16 by 24 foot field station was erected on a rock outcropping adjacent to the snow dome. This was to be my summer home from the age of five until I was 16. That time spent living on the mountain has never left me. I find myself driven back to those memories. The experience looms inside of me, a psychic presence of great power. I return to cleanse my past and dwell in peace with my mountain parentage. Each summer morning, I would awaken and walk outside to see the mountain. On clear days, I would walk the horizon on a radiance of light. The glacier was sharp as a shale beneath my bare feet. The air was unburdened, carrying only the cold and light. It would pass as a breath of wind barely noticed, leaving the mountain to touch me unhindered. On cloudy mornings, the island of rock around the cabin was the extent of my world. Dimly felt shapes would press against the clouds, hinting at the world I knew to be there. The focal point of the mountain constantly changed. I've grown a whole mythology of remembrance around the view from the glacier vast distances and oppressive nearness were the gods of my life. I used to climb to the top of a small peak behind the cabin and look out over the valleys below. The horizon extended from the Cascades to the east to the Pacific in the west. 
To the north lay Vancouver Island and the peak of the coast range in British Columbia. I had the entire Puget Basin as the curbside for my imagination. I have difficulty filling the vacancy such space has left me in life. It has been a Promethean wound. Often I would sit on the peak and stare out onto the valleys below, from which the wind carried the smells of the forest upward to my resting place. Unexpected openings in the currents of air revealed whole meadows. The smells were over in the mountain, and I could see one particular valley from the peak, which fascinated me. It would usually melt by the middle of July. Four small lakes lay on the floor of the valley. I was a hermit of the valley and had responsibility for the adventures that took place there. I have often intended to visit the valley in person, but never have. It remains sacred to the visitations of a child whose day was at the mercy of the mountain. Drifting patches of clouds raced their shadows across the snowfields and enveloped me. The sun wandered across the sky and my body simultaneously. I was overly sensitive to the lighting and mood of the glacier. I was content to live in a child's eternity with the peaks as my companions. No brothers or sisters, no playmates to seduce me from the mountain. It was an innocence that had its own ecology. The research station and its debris were as natural as any other part of my glacier life. I suppose now I could find the rationale of the protests. I could disapprove of such wilderness contaminations, but it would be a lie. My emotions cling to the unchanged unity of my childhood. My earliest memories come from when I was two years old. At that time, we lived in tents on the moraine of the lower blue glacier. The tents were strung out along the thin, rocky top. Heather and a few wildflowers grew among the glacier debris. I remember it as always being foggy. The glacier and the fog intermingled, creating a uniform world of white. The dim forms of trees could be seen downslope from the moraine. Looking upward, the snow blended into the sky. Out of the mingling of heaven and earth, climbers would occasionally appear. I remember having an unquenchable awe for the bundled men who went high above my world. The peak-shaped six-man army tents filled with the incense of Coleman stove gas and musty canvas were my personal temples. They took on a substantiality that seemed to magnify their interiors beyond all reason. All the space in the world could fit, together with my sense of security, inside of those tents. My staple food in those days was peanut butter and Logan bread. I am burnt out on both. Even now, peanut butter has little hold over me. I grew up being the kid who didn't like peanut butter, a stigma that would set me apart. One of the many ways the mountains separated me from my age. I was timeless, with no need to grow up or change or be any different than I was. That internal time sense lingers on, subtly conditioning my world even now. I had few toys then. A red ball was my prized possession. One day I lost it, the ball rolling down into the glacier and then disappearing into the ice field. 
I still distrust that ice field. I feel cheated by the convolutions that rob me of my toy. I can watch that ball disappear endlessly in the inattentiveness of my life. The glacier is my silent answer, the judge of my willfulness to find my lost possession and pick up the pieces of my craft. I was two then, and I made my first walk up the Ho River Trail to the glacier. My only memory of that particular hike is of my father coming to meet my mother and me three quarters of the way up the trail. He had come down from the camp on the moraine. I remember him bouncing along the trail, tanned and full of energy. His presence on the mountain was overwhelming, and I was captivated by my father. He was transformed into an emissary of the mountain. The bridge where we met was the demarcation point between the valley floor and the climb upward. The area of the bridge had always transfixed me. It spans the whole river as it meets Glacier Creek. The hawk runs in deep chasm at this point. The boiling water in the narrow canyon was mesmerizing. The water welled up in massive spirals. A deep green movement muted with glacial dust. An overpowering urge to jump would strike me like a disease. It was with little surprise that I learned of a suicide from the bridge a few years ago. The trail upward reads clearly in my memory. The slow places, the first view of the mountain, avenues of moss, and the lake all appear when called upon. The personality that emerges along the trail is as complete as any other part of my glacier life. The steady fall of footsteps measured off the thoughts and feelings of the journey. Always there was an image of that mountain that displaced the monotony. The clear crunch of snow underfoot echoed along the hot mosquito paved way. The other worlds of snow and ice haunted the footfalls of the forest. Such comparative spaces are the legacy of the mountain. To have lived in the highlands has rendered the lowlands incomplete. My intellect rebels at such thoughts, but in my heart I feel it to be true. I am inflated by the mountain. Tendrils of perfection reach out from my past, usurping the present. Time is elastic. It stretched to break a child's patience, riding the eternal presence of the mountain. The coming and going of the sun was the heartbeat of glacial time. During the long periods of storm, the days would lengthen into boredom. The four walls of the cabin were the measure of my sanity. Among the refuge were cases of survival rations that would be airdropped at the start of the project. They were intended as a stock of emergency food. Instead, they became part of my personal domain. Opening all of the carefully packaged food, uncovering treasure after treasure had its own delight. A six-year-old can of fruit cocktail may not seem luxuriant, but entwined in the rituals of my childhood, it was pure ambrosia. Tiring of the usual cabin occupations, I would sit and watch the fog blow past the window. Cunning wisps of cloud steamed from wet rocks. It was as if the sea had risen and was soothing in phantom shapes, turning the valley into cauldrons. The presence of something just beyond reach often came to me. 
there was a pregnant depth to the storm that fascinated me. Even though it might be sleeting or snowing, there was an indefinite heat that seemed to flow from the grays and whites of the storm. It was the incarnation of storm demons, and my fascination struggled to uncover their birth. More often than not, a child's boredom quenched the mystic in me, and I would turn to the cabin for amusement once again. The opiate of card games, books, and food shut out the storm. During the early years of the project, I often flew into the glacier on the supply main. It was a small plane with a payload of 300 pounds. Thinking that this one small plane supplied the vast machinery of the vastness I conceived was a product of childhood vision. There was a self-containing to the station that assumed the weight of my whole world. The airport was an old World War I fighter strip and was absurdly large for the small aircraft that flew out of it. I filled some of the space learning to ride a bicycle on the acres of unused pavement. Those times at the airport were gilded with the edge of anticipation, the subtle warmth of knowing I was on the edge of another way of life. For the flight in, I was seat belted and then surrounded with the rest of the baggage. I would wrap the plane around me like a chrysalis and wait to emerge on the mountain. Invariably, I was confounded by the terrain on the way in. As the plane climbed, a snow massive would appear that looked deceptively like the Blue Glacier. I would be amazed at the speed of flight, but a little disappointed in the shabbiness of the vision before me. The mountain was spectacular, but did not have the aura of the glacier. I would resign myself to the counterfeit, and then the plane would pass beyond, revealing the real thing. The Blue Glacier quickly filled the gaps in my memory with the ease of recalled landmarks. I was navigating again in the security of the past. The plane would land and I would stagger out, ducking to avoid the blow of light. But there was no escaping the radiance of the mountain. I was home. The safety record of the station underscores the sense of security I had about the place. In the 17 years of its existence, the only injuries there were a sprained knee and a mild case of food poisoning. I had an inner freedom that betrayed an unsaid bond between the mountain and me. There was trust between us. I learned a subtle secret of movement in those early years of scrambling over the rotten Olympic rock. The secret was to trust the mountain and move as low in my body weight as I could. There is a touch that sustains you when you abandon yourself to a mountain. Some days I could move unencumbered with my body an effortless flow from somewhere around my waist. There was no separation between who I was and where I wanted to be. I travel in the mountain now and am amazed at how some people move through the land. They appear to walk from somewhere in their throats or chest and have to constantly readjust their balance as a result. Come down, I want to tell them. Relax and walk with the mountain. The early ease of the glacier has left me in a naivete about mountains. In general, I could easily disappear into strange peaks with nothing more than a shire, pants, and shoes. My conditioning draws me to high places, but leaves me unprepared, a traitorous beguilement. Watching the sunset was sacred to the glacial ritual. I doubt if I had forgotten any of the thousands of nightfalls I have seen. 
As the air stilled countless times on the point of setting sun, I traveled the links of Puget Basin in the stillness. The lights of Victoria and Vancouver would gradually emerge. The Pacific coastline sometimes broke free of the fog. The Tatouche Island echoing the constancy of my sunset awareness. My vision would be entirely different each time, and yet the same mood would flow over me. The sense of being on the edge of eternal time. I felt a peculiar attraction to the cities at night. The cold of the evenings would come up fast, biting through my parka. But often, I stayed and lingered in the after colors of the sun and I would gaze out towards the city, I treasured the presence of other people. The lonely place in me that was an only child on the glacier took comfort in the distant lights. Vancouver and Victoria have always been my favorite cities. The only times I can remember feeling a sense of acute danger on the glacier is when I journeyed into the crevices field. The really large crevice the ones that could swallow several buildings easily petrified me. I would creep downhill to the edge and look in. I could never dismiss the glacier when it opened itself with such massive wounds. The crevice always chilled me. The crevices always chilled me. It could be a hot day and I would still get a cold shiver looking into the ice shadows. On the other side of the prominence where the cabins, where the cabins were situated, there were large crevices, catchment basins. Should I ever slip and try for the valley floor? They were the watchdogs of my world. In my mind, I have fallen many times. The result of these musings being hours of imaginative attempts to extricate myself from the glacier. Candy for a child's mind. As the summer deepened, the sun cups of the glacier surface would grow more profuse. If they became too large, they would endanger the landing of the ski plane. I can remember many times trudging out after dinner to do battle with the sun cups. It was glacier housekeeping. We would carefully shovel the top layer of the snow away from the landing zone, leaving a strip of cleaner, less contorted surface behind. It always seemed futile to me, rearranging a small patch of glacier in hopes of fooling the sun for a few more days. It was like scratching the back of an enormous beast so a gnat of an airplane could land. The ice worms came out in profusion during the evening hours. Every shovel of snow was covered by sun cups and little black worms. I learned much about the tenacity of life by digging down through the layers of algae and ice worms, uncovering the thin layer of life that the glacier begrudgingly sustained. Throwing ice worms into the sun, I would watch the day end. The glacier was an ocean. Whenever I stepped off the rock and headed onto the snowfield, it was an entrance into another medium. In the morning, the crust would unyieldingly, a control step to navigate between the cups, a thin membrane of tension protecting me from the deeper currents of these. I was always amazed at the distance I could cover in my early mornings as the sun rose higher. The glacier quickly sucked at my feet. Footholds had an infurious existence on the snow as the soft snow gave way under my weight. Distances would drag out the glare and heat of the snow. 
The glacier could be a desert, an ocean, and an ice field. Within the change of a few degrees of the sun. The sun molded the substance of my world shaping, giving it color and tone. The ocean of snow was extremely sensitive to the slightest change in the environment. It was a resonant membrane that suffered us to walk on. Scientifically, much of the early research conducted on the mountain was to determine the energy exchange of the glacier. Instruments were set up to monitor the incoming and outgoing radiation. Thermocouples monitored the air temperature over the snow surface. The microclimate of the glacier was constantly logged. The living movement of the glacier was transposed into dots and lines of yards of recorder paper. There was an interesting progression of research over the years. The initial experiments studied the energy exchange on the surface of the glacier. The surface was mapped and surveyed points were established. Sites were picked for ablation measurements. The glacier was monitored for extremely subtle changes. As the years passed, there was more concern with the internal structure. Hot points drilled, wormed their way down to measure the depth. Pits and tunnels grew larger and deeper. The hardware associated with the research transformed. Electronics gave way to air compressors and jackhammer. The permutations of gravity as it played within the ice animated the glacier. The life of the glacier was communicated in plastic flow. The mechanism of that flow was the focus of attention for the research. Science was a ritual that I took for granted. It was something automatically done when confronted with something as mysterious as a glacier. I knew that all the instruments and all the experiments would never really unmask the mountain, but the ritual was important. There was a subterranean purpose behind the daily tasks of the project. Even now, I only have a fleeting glimpse of that purpose in my mind, enough of a view to know that science really was a sacred approach to the mountain, a way of expressing the connection of man with the mountain. The last year I spent on the glacier was a year of the great tunnel dig. An ice tunnel was bored into the western ice wall. The effort involved 14 people, an unheard of population for the station. The silence of the mountain was pushed into the background with the intensity of the activity. The tunnel, when completed, reached to bedrock. One section of the tunnel deformed so quickly that it repeatedly had to be dug out. The tunnel bisected several small crevices. It afforded the interesting comfort of being able to look up at the crevices while secure within it. The end of the tunnel revealed the soul of the glacier. The ice was exposed in its massive response to gravity. Long feathers of ice peeled away from the ice rock contact. There actually was considerable space between the two mediums at various points. I always felt, standing at the tunnel's end, that I was intruding on some private relationship between the glacier and the earth, and I would catch that moment of the glacier in the transitory light of a flashlight. An intrusion of human perception that violated the time sense of the glacier. The psychological space of the project was far different than during any previous year. The drama of living together with 14 people in a small mountain cabin became more interesting 
than the physical surroundings. An example of change was the transformation of my favorite scrambling areas into an area of competition. I joined with the others in trying to make an impossible route. The old ease with the mountain was gone. The freedom of scrambling was caught in personality structures. I was growing up into the world of adults. It was fascinating, but it was also drowning out my connection with the mountain. My descent into adulthood has been arduous. No climb in any of my glacier years can match the shock of having to grow up. I no longer have the psychological edge of the mountain. I am stripped of my uniqueness, my mountain overrun with hundreds of climbers. I have been forced to let go of the invalid sanctuary of my youth. The memory vault has opened and everything the mountain was poured out, demanding a new reconciliation. The power of my connection with it emerges despite, despite the saccharine memories I cloak it with. This dual vision of wishful memories and real power is my legacy of childhood in the peaks. The Mountain Gazette Library is produced and hosted by me, John Bustar. For more, head over to mountaingazette.com slash subscribe today and pick up a subscription to the magazine. This podcast is executive produced by Mike Rogge, marketing by Austin Holt, produced by Connor Sedmak, social media by Amy Doran, and public relations by Ryan Rowe. No part of this podcast may be reproduced without written permission from Mountain Gazette and its parent company, Verb Cabin, LLC. 